Well, good morning. And welcome to Bridgewater. We're glad you're here. My name is Matt. I'm the joy of being the campus pastor here uh, this morning. As Luke said, I just want to welcome you. If you're new here with us this morning, we hope you find your people here as well. Hey, if you're new here, we're jumping into our series called Mirror Images. Uh, it's a five-week series that we're launching uh, in an effort to help navigate and walk into some of the conversations that are most pressing uh, to our culture today. And uh, what we hope through this series really is that we will go back to the beginning. We'll go back to God as the originator and creator of uh, all that we know to exist and that we would seek his word on how we're supposed to approach these conversations. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to be into uh, some heavier conversations. We're going to be talking about God's design for uh, human life, for sexuality, for gender, and for marriage. And um, what we'd invite you to do, almost ask you to do, uh, is to come every week for the next five weeks. Uh, because here's, here's the reason. These are giant conversations that I cannot answer all of your questions in one week. In fact, I'm confident I can't even answer all of your questions in five weeks because when I answer one question, I'll probably spark another question. And so our hope for these next five weeks is to give you a grid that you yourself can begin to ask these questions and approach life on things that really, really matter in a way that you would have confidence in what God's word says and that our lives would begin to align and reflect the good and right design that God has for us. And so uh, I, I say that, and then I also say in the same breath, I want you to hear our heart in this series. Our heart in this series is not that anyone would feel isolated or called out, but that we together could come to a place of posture and humility uh, because we know that the culture around us has lots of opinions and lots of voices speaking into these very issues and our desires that we would give space to the word of God to speak truth to us, right? This series is not based on Matt Pooster's preference or anybody else's preference. It's based on what we believe God's word would call us to in these areas. So that's our desire and intention in this. And we'll talk kind of more about that at the end. But here's four requests additional, besides coming every week, here's four requests I have from you as we jump into this series. That we would commit to be learners, not judges. As we're approaching these conversations, I'm sure many of us have preformed opinions and that we would all be willing to be learners of God's word, whatever side uh, you stand on these issues, that our heart would be one of humility, curiosity, and ultimately one that seeks truth, not in a place of judgment over a position we've already decided to hold, but we would know why we hold that and understand whether it's biblical and right in God's word. Here's the next uh, challenge that we would develop a burden for people who sin or struggle differently than we might. We'll talk more about that one at the end. To encourage our posture to be that of compassion for people rather than disdain. It is easy as we walk through life and encounter people who think differently, believe differently, view the world differently than us, to look at different with disdain. And that's not what Jesus did. Because when Jesus walked in the earth, he looked at people who were clearly different than him. They were broken humans. And he did not treat them with disdain. He treated them with compassion. And so as God's people, that same call is on our life as well. And here's the fourth one. To equip us to engage in others' lives. That if somebody comes to you with a question about one of these issues that we're going to talk about over the course of this series, you don't have to say, I don't know, go talk to my pastor. You can say, hmm, that's a really good question. Let me show you what I have observed in God's word and let me share it with you. And at the end of that, if you go, Okay, now I'll go talk to my pastor. That's fine. We'll talk about what appropriately being prepared for those answers are. But we want you to have the guideposts necessary to navigate what seems like ever-shifting sands. Is that fair? Can we commit to those? All right. 
So uh, what we're doing today really is we're just laying the foundation. So you can take a deep breath. We're not going to get into any of the hard subjects today. Uh, we're just going to lay the foundation in which we need to begin to ask all of these questions through uh, this worldview idea that we're talking about. Maybe you've never heard of a worldview, but a worldview is basically uh, the set of lenses and filters you use to answer really important questions about life. And so there's five basic worldview questions that every worldview has to answer. And so here's what those questions are. Where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And how do I determine what is true? If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to talk about a biblical worldview. But if you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus, whatever worldview you uh, have submitted to has to be able to appropriately, accurately, and consistently answer these questions. And so if you choose uh, where you are in life right now to believe something other than Christianity, you have to be able to answer these questions accurately, consistently, and appropriately. Where did I come from? What is the origin? So for biblical Christianity, we would say uh, we came from God and his uh, personal involvement in creation, right? Who am I? And so we're, we're going to answer a couple of these this morning. Um, but if you've never wrestled through these questions, you have to. And here's why. How I answer and how you answer questions of origin, purpose, and design will ultimately dictate how you answer questions about sexuality, morality, and ethics. Does that make sense? So if I've, I submit to a worldview that doesn't believe in the value of human life, how I answer the question about the value of human life is dictated by my worldview. As followers of God, our worldview is what ultimately determines how we answer really important questions. And so today, my heart is to give you three guideposts or three fundamental truths that will help you shape up uh, the, a biblical worldview as we walk through this series. And this is going to be essential uh, to the rest of the series as you uh, listen in. So here's the first uh, fundamental truth for us this morning. God is the source of life. This is the answer to a couple of our worldview questions. It's simply stated, God is the source of life. Now I want to show you where that comes from. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to send you on a wild, wild goose chase to the first page. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, it's just a couple pages in. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to put one in your hands for free back out at the Welcome Center. If not, it'll be on the screen here behind me. We're just going to look at a couple verses here. Uh, throughout the next five weeks, we are going to be in Genesis 1 and 2, chapter 1 and 2 each week. So I'd encourage you, if you uh, have a Bible, if you have the Bible reading plan on version app, go ahead and just read through Genesis 1 and 2 as we go through this series so that you're familiar with the text that we're talking about. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're just going to pause right there. A famed theologian has been uh, quoted by saying it's the most pregnant verse in all of Scripture. And what they mean is that verse is packed with so much meaning. And maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. You've probably likely heard that phrase. And if you are a follower of Jesus, maybe you so often just rush right past that verse because it's just so familiar to us. But we need to slow down and unpack what this verse actually says because it answers a whole bunch of our worldview questions in the first couple words. And so we're just going to kind of walk through each section of this together. So here's the first piece. In the beginning. This phrase, in the beginning, indicates that there was a period that existed prior to time as we know it. That before our construct of time existed, something existed uh, outside of that time. Now that is a concept that hurts my brain every time I think about it because our entire life is wrapped up in the concept of time. When were you born? How old are you? When did you graduate? How old are your kids? How old were they when they passed away? Everything about us exists within time. 
But yet what this passage tells us is that before time existed, something existed. Now, did you notice? I can't even describe this period of time without using a time connotation before. And so here's, here's why this is important for us. There is some things about life and creation and our existence that don't fit in our brains. And if you're an honest intellectual, there are things you don't understand about Christianity. There are things I don't understand about the creation narrative. But here's what this means. It doesn't make it untrue. It just means I might not be as smart as I think I am. It might mean that the creator of the universe and the heavens is quite a bit smarter than me, that there's some concepts that are true about him that I don't get yet. I see in a mirror dimly lit what I will understand fully one day, but if I could understand everything about God, he wouldn't be that great because he'd fit in this little brain. And there's some dumb information that fits in there. And I don't think I want a God who fits in my brain entirely. I think whether we will admit it or not, we really do need something above and beyond us. And that is exactly who God is. In the beginning, God. God was that something that stood before the beginning of time. God always was, always has been, and always will be. He had no creator. He had no beginning, which means everything we know about life has its origin in God. God is the source of life. Everything we see, taste, believe, feel has its origin in God speaking that very creation into existence, which is the next piece of that verse, that God in that space that we don't fully comprehend decided to create us. He spoke his creation into existence, which means everything in life is determined, set by God, which is really important for how you and I answer those worldview questions. Because who wasn't there before the beginning of time, before creation? Me, <laughs> you, and yet God was, and when he spoke, what he spoke was his creation into existence. And here's what the rest of that verse said. He created the heavens. As I consider the heavens, I think the heavens for me are really, in my limited knowledge, are just God showing off. Have you ever spent any time looking through the Hubble telescope or any pictures uh, surrounding that? It is incredible as we consider the expanse of the heavens and the universe and the galaxies. Like we think we're pretty smart. And then we look in this telescope, which is very, very impressive. And as far as we can see, we realized every time we think we reached the end, we've just entered another doorway and we can't ever seem to find the end of the universe. In fact, here's a picture of uh, our galaxy, the Milky Way, through the Hubble telescope. Billions and billions of stars and planets and just this incredible expanse. And what chapter one, verse one said is that in the beginning, before any of this existed, there was God and God created this. He just created this incredible expanse. And listen to how the psalmist talks about this very thing. It says, he determines, being God, the number of stars he gives to all of them their names. We can't even count the stars. They're stars that we don't even know exist. And yet God has them all named. And here's where it gets even crazier. This is what Job says in Job chapter 26, verse 14. It says, and these, referring to the heavens, are but the outer fringe of his works. Meaning the things we are incapable to even discover haven't even scratched the surface on the type of God he is. Why am I harping on this? Because if that's true, and I'm a piece of his creation, isn't it mighty arrogant of me to think that I know better than him? 
isn't it mighty disillusioned of me to think that I know a way to life better than the God who has spoken billions of galaxies into existence? We start here because we have to have a right view of ourselves. Because if we don't view ourselves rightly, we will not order our lives rightly. That's the next part of the verse. Here it's heavens and the earth. What's miraculous to me about the creation narrative is that as, as expansive as the universe is, God chose to take this little insignificant rock we call Earth, which is not even the most impressive planet in our solar system, place that inside of the Milky Way solar system. And then he picked you and me to bear his image, his crown jewel, the only part of all of his creation that has a special privilege of bearing his image on that rock. And he determined the number of hairs on your head. That's this personal creative God. And here's another picture of the Milky Way. And I want to play this little game with you. You ever go hiking? And while you're hiking, you try to figure out where you are on the map. And then you're really thankful for that big blob that's like, you are here in case you are directionally challenged. Okay? Well, I'm directionally challenged when it comes to space. So we made one for you. And here's where you are. You are here. Uh, that doesn't help you any. And you could probably never find yourself again on a map. But I think it proves my point. I think it proves my point to the magnitude and vastness of the God who calls you his children. I think it changes my posture about how I approach a whole lot of life. Because I'm just not him. I'm incapable of being him. Frankly, I don't want to be him. But it changes my posture to one of humility and being a learner. The God of the universe would send his son and give us his word to reveal who he is. Let's keep reading verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. We're not going to read through the whole creation narrative together. Again, I encourage you to read that on your own. I just want to highlight this part of verse 3 here. It said, and God said. When God spoke creation into existence, he simply did that according to what we read here in the passage, that there was nothing and then God spoke and there was something. So this morning, if I was to stand up here and to hold my hand out and say, tree, grow, what would happen? Nothing besides me awkwardly standing here holding my hand out, right? If I wanted a tree to grow, I'm going to have to go to the hardware store. I'm going to have to go find a piece of property. I'm going to ask Laura O'Connor to come help me because I'm going to kill the tree before I even get it in the ground. And I'm going to have to grow that tree, hopefully with water, love, and a whole lot of care. Did I create anything? No. I used what already existed in creation to create something else. We lack the ability to speak uh, existence out of nothing, but not God. Out of nothing, God spoke, which sets him apart from us even more, which reinforces the point I wanted to give you this morning, which is this first point here again, that God is the source of life. And if God is the source of life, if God alone is the sole originator of, originator of creation who spoke us into existence, then God alone has the right to determine how this life works, operates, and what is called good and right for human flourishing. We, as his creation, in his created order, do not have the right or authority to decide those things. He alone has the right to do that. I want you to listen to how Matt Chandler, a pastor and author in Texas, says this same thing. He said, there is a personal, infinite, eternal, just, loving, holy God who designed the universe and everything in it to reflect his glory, greatness, beauty, power, justice, and mercy. He has no beginning and no end. He depends on no one and nothing. He alone can rightly and justly determine life and permit what is good and right. 
which gives us purpose. You and I are not pieces of organic material floating through the cosmos trying to find purpose and existence and reasoning. God has given those. He has spoken into our life purpose. We are his creation commissioned by him to fulfill the task he has given us on earth. It answers so many of the questions our culture is trying to answer about who am I and why do I exist and why am I here. God has already answered those questions for us. We don't have to go looking for them. He has already given them to us. And he and he alone has the right to determine life and permit what is good and right. When God created you and I, he created uh, a, a Eden is what it's called, but a paradise in which you and I never knew pain, sorrow, suffering, or sickness, in which we existed in perfect, harmonious relationship with God. That was his intent for us. And so when he designed us, he designed us to flourish. What happened, though, in a devastating act of rebellion is man decided that we had the right to determine what was good and right and what were the boundaries of life. And so man rebelled against God's good and right design and ultimately bringing on them the pain, sorrow, and suffering that we all experience. Like you know you were never meant to feel pain, sorrow, and suffering. You were never meant to know death. In God's good and right design, you never would taste death. Sin did that to us. God in his graciousness, though, has not left us to that. What we're really doing over the rest of this series is answering the question is how do we deal with the brokenness of life that we feel and reconcile it with the good and right design that God has for us? How do we return our lives to the order in which God has made us not to feel pain, but to flourish? Because wherever you stand in your faith, that's what you want. You make choices in your life to flourish, to find joy, to find peace, to find happiness. And what the word of God would say is here is the pathway to that very life we all desire. Which leads us to our second foundational truth for us this morning. And it's this, that the Bible is the authority for life. God is the source of life and the Bible is the authority for life. What is the authority on? It is the authority on what is good and right for us as his creation. It is the authority that speaks the way back to the original design the Father has for us. Go ahead and turn with me to the totally opposite end of your Bible, 2 Timothy. John will be on the screen here behind me. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Did you catch that phrase in verse 16? All scripture is what? God-breathed. Which if you think back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and God said, what this tells us is that truth and life have the very same origin in God. That God is the origin of all truth, which is really, really important for us. We'll talk about that in a second. But when God speaks truth, what is both spoken and written for us in the scriptures, it is there to guide us into the God's good and right design for us. The scriptures are God's revelation of his character and the revelation of how he works in us. And so when we read God's word, it's not because it's just rules of do's and don'ts that we like to beat people over the head with sometimes in churches. It's because it is the very pieces of truth we need to navigate this broken life back to the life God has for us. Maybe this will help make sense of it. In a world before uh, GPSs and iPhones and even good maps, which many, many of us probably don't even remember those days, 
they used to navigate by these uh, waypoints or these fixed points in the sky. So if you're crossing uh, the ocean in 1492, uh, what are you doing? You're using the stars. We have a picture here of some stars, right? You're using these fixed points, be it the North Star, the Southern Cross, wherever you are. Um, you're looking up above ourselves to find these things that are immovable. And you knew if you were off here and it was this many degrees off to the right, you were off course by this much and you needed to redirect course. So that was how they navigated back in the day. If they lost their fixed points, they were quickly themselves lost and probably found their ruin pretty soon. Now, that's terrifying to me because I lose which one's the North Star every time I look up. Okay? They were very skilled at this, but here's what this translates for us today. We live in a culture that is, has ever-shifting sand of what is true, ever-shifting sand of what is uh, tangible to hang our uh, worldview on, and what we have lost is these fixed points. Well, Scripture provides those fixed points for us. It answers those questions. It answers the questions that our culture is wrestling with and what we're going to have to do through this series, and here's the hard invitation for each of us, is that when the Bible and culture collide, we must return to the fixed points of God's Word. When we feel lost in the conversations that we're going to approach, we don't have to be lost. We just have to look up beyond ourselves and our feelings to the fixed points in God's word, which have been given to us to rightly order our life to flourishing. And this is really easy for me to say when the Bible doesn't collide with anything you care about. It's easy to cheer this on when I'm not confronted by truth that I already agree with. It's much harder when it confronts a truth that I disagree with. When it pokes me in a place in my belief system that I want to be right. Well, here's what has been true of Christianity for as long as it's been around. There's been this confession of a Christian that is solo scripture. That scripture alone determines the source of truth. Scripture alone is our source of truth. Culture has now taken that and shifted it, and maybe we're even guilty of it here in this room, to be solo experience. That experience alone is what is true. And you hear this in phrases like, no one can tell me what is true for me because my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. What is that? That solo experience, that my experience of this life and this created order are the determiners of my waypoints, which is why we're in the mess that we're in. Because we've moved from God's good and right design to whatever feels good. Now, listen, let's be honest in the morning, this, this morning. If we all did what felt good to us all the time, you know what a mess our lives would be? Well, let me just be fair. You know what a mess my life would be? And yet, we have a generation who's celebrating their experience as ultimate. And what the word of God would say to us this morning is we watched this in Genesis chapter 3. It didn't go well. It didn't. What did go well was believing in God's word that the good and right design is for our flourishing. And here's what this means, boots on the ground for us this week. There's a quote that just perfectly captured what I wanted to say, and so I'll just read you the quote, but know this is my heart for you. If a pastor really loves you, he will not affirm what scripture teaches, will not prosper you, but harm you. If I really love you as your pastor, I will have to speak truth that might upset you, but it's because I love you. I cannot celebrate what scripture says will harm you. And here's, here's how this plays out in my life. I love Callum. You guys have probably seen Callum, my little one-year-old. Um, we thought we just nailed parenting with Jocko, and then we got Callum and realized we're just every other parent out there, okay? 
You're welcome. I got humbled. I know you're all waiting for it, okay? Callum has this thing about my banister. If you've never seen a picture of my house, we have a second-story deck that just, just right off, uh, off the edge of that deck. Callum is obsessed with trying to climb this banister, okay? He has moved chairs. He has dragged things out of the living room onto the thing. Like, we are on full watch all the time to make sure that he doesn't get over this banister. Now, let's, let's put this in context of what we're saying here. We're talking solo experience, that my truth is my truth. Okay, if I love Callum, I'll let him express himself in his truest self, which is phrases you're hearing all the time. Okay, so you're telling me, as a parent, I'm supposed to sit inside of my couch and sit on my couch and watch my son try to climb over the banister, which I know is ultimately going to hurt him? Absolutely not. You should call CPS on me. That would be terrible. I'm not doing it. Don't call CPS on me, okay? <laughs> and yet... Our culture is celebrating while we're watching people jump off of second-story banisters that we know are going to harm them. No, listen, I'm more pro my son's joy than he even knows. I'm more pro my son's flourishing than he understands. And what I know, because I helped build that deck with Mark Page, is that a good life for him is inside of the bounds of the deck railing. That inside of the boundaries we created for his safety, he gets to play with his toys, ride his bike, and bug his brother to no end, which is flourishing and joy for him. And listen, we get that when it comes to my one-year-old. And yet, when it comes to the design and the boundaries given in God's word, we rebel against it and call it evil. We call it restrictive. We call it unloving. And I think it's because we just don't understand God's heart for us. When God says no... It's for your good. When God puts up boundaries in our life, it's for our flourishing. And you see this and you go, yeah, we celebrate this for the world out there. We celebrate this for people who sin differently than us. But when truth comes and confronts me, do you know how quick we are to minimize, dismiss the truth that would tell us no? See, I think we have to see this from the Father's heart. When God says, no, this is out of bounds, what he's saying to you is, I don't want you to jump off of a cliff that I know is going to hurt you. I don't want to see you. I want to see you flourish. And sin has lied to all of us. And so we don't point fingers anywhere but to ourselves because we all have stood at the edge of what God has called good and right and said, I want it anyway, which is exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And what happened? Pain, sorrow, and destruction followed, which is not God's heart for any of us. God wants the best for you. And that is found within his good and right design. One of the hesitations to preaching this series for me um, for, for quite some time has been that we would take this truth and we would take the truth in God's word, which we know is infallible and trustworthy and, and good and right for the ordering of life, and we would weaponize it against the very people God is trying to rescue with the truth in this passage that we would take the, these, these stances of when God tells you, no, it's for your good, and that we'd run out and we'd weaponize them. It's been a fear of mine walking into this, and I just had to walk into God's word and say, listen, we gotta, we got to submit to this word in the way that Jesus calls us to, which is our third fundamental truth for us this morning for a biblical worldview, that grace and truth is our approach to life. And maybe you're a grammar teacher, an English teacher, and you're like, it's supposed to be grace and truth are, I know. I did it on purpose, and here's why. Grace and truth are inseparable pieces of being a Christ follower. If you have grace without truth or truth without grace, you have missed the heart of God himself. 
And so as we approach these next four weeks, as we approach even understanding a biblical worldview and encountering people who think differently, believe differently, and view the world differently than us, we must approach it with grace and truth. And here's why. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. I'm just going to walk through this. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. That is our heart as you come into this, into this series and as you go about life that your heart would be so postured to those who think differently than you that you'd walk in wisdom when you answer questions. Oh, you're a Christian. What do you think about X, Y, and Z? That we'd be wise, and for this reason, that we would make the most of every opportunity. That those opportunities are where we get to make much of the love of God. Verse 6, and this is what we're going to kind of come back to every week, is this. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer Everyone. It doesn't say let every conversation be sometimes filled with grace or when it's somebody who's being gracious towards you or somebody who agrees with you. It says, no, no, no. Every conversation always full of grace. Seasoned with salt, right? You know you can hear truth from somebody in such a graceless way without any salt on it and you don't want to hear a thing. Somebody else can give you that same truth graciously, kindly, in a palatable way, and it changed your life. You know how I know that? Because the gospel's offensive. You know what the gospel says? That we're wretched sinners in need of a savior, that we have no ability to save ourselves on our own. That's offensive news. But apparently you believed it, or some of you believed it. Why? Because it was presented to you that the grace of Jesus has overcome our greatest failures. That the grace of Jesus knows that when you've jumped off that railing, as much as it pains God that you jumped off that railing, he sent Jesus over after you too. That we have the Savior who knows every way we were tempted, yet is without sin. Because we serve the God who looked at the creation, who rebelled against him, ignored him, uh, chose their own way, and yet he chased them down to bring them back. And he didn't make them pay for it. Jesus paid for it. That's the gospel we believe. And so if you're ever wondering how to answer a question, it says you already know that it would be full of truth and grace. And like I said earlier, we applaud when somebody else gets confronted by truth. <laughs> and we minimize that same truth when it confronts us. Could we be just as gracious with God's truth when we give it to people in the way that we want to receive it? Could we? I want to end with reading to you a passage of John chapter 1. Give you some more questions to think about. As if I haven't given you enough to think about, I'm going to give you some more. John chapter 1, just a couple of verses. In the beginning was the Word. And you'll see through the context here that the Word was Jesus, but I'll just tell it to you now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Meaning Jesus was present at creation, and all creation was made through him. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you're here this morning and you're approaching these, uh, this series with a little bit of fear and trepidation about what's going on in our culture and what's happening, and you feel like the Christian worldview is being minimized, can I tell you, take heart this morning? Our worldview isn't determined by popular opinion or public preference. Our hope and how we view life isn't determined by what people think of us. Our hope is determined by the person of Jesus, who is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The way of Jesus will not be overrun by any evil. Why? Because Jesus has already defeated it. 
Take heart in the darkness that we have the light. Jump to verse 14 with me. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, say it with me, full of grace and truth. The very God who spoke creation into existence, who with his very breath spoke billions of galaxies and with that same breath spoke life into the dirt and out came Adam and put his image on him and knew the days you were going to live long before you were ever born and sent Jesus on a rescue mission to redeem you back from the darkness when he showed up in flesh. He didn't come in and say, you dummies, you've missed it all. He came full of grace and truth. Church, could we be that in our culture? That regardless of what people say about us, think about us, speak at us, that full of grace and truth, we would have an unwavering commitment to what is true because we know it leads to human flourishing. We'd have an equal unwavering commitment to walk in the grace of Jesus that has so radically changed our lives. Here's some questions you need to wrestle with this week. If you want to go ahead and write these down, take a picture. I'll get out of the way so you don't have any ugly mug shots of me. Here's the question you got to wrestle with this week. Is your worldview filtered through the Bible or is your worldview filtering the Bible? As you look at life and you approach these big questions, are you looking at all of these hard questions through the filter of God's word saying this ultimately determines what is right and true or am I deciding what is good and right and true in the Bible? Can I tell you one of those is a very dangerous position to be in and one of those is a very freeing position to be in. But we have to answer that question because there will be things, because we are humans, where this Bible disagrees with our preference and opinion, and we have to choose ultimately what we will submit our lives to. Me or the written word of God? Here's the second question for us. Is your testimony towards outsiders helpful to them coming to faith in Jesus? Here's how you know this. Do non-Christian people want to talk to you about these things? Do non-Christian people want to talk to you about difficult issues in their life? If the answer is no, maybe we need to reapproach our approach. Maybe we need to reconsider how much grace and truth exists in our life. Maybe we need to ask some of those questions. I'm not saying they're going to like what you have to say, but what I am saying is if they're going to reject truth, let it be because they reject truth on its own merits, not because the messenger handled it so poorly. Is that fair? Here's the third question, which is just that. Are your conversations full of grace and anchored in truth? Why do I reiterate this one? Because we live in a culture, even in a Christian culture, where it's tempting to let this idea of uh, Jesus loves everybody win out, and it sounds really spiritual, until you put it back under the context of my deck. When you think about love telling us no for our good, right, and, and, and ultimately the flourishing of our life, Jesus won't tell us yes to everything we want because he knows it'll harm us. And so, uh, yes, we remain anchored in truth, because this is God's good and right design for us, and we hold it with gracious hands. Here's the fourth one. Are you appropriately prepared to give answers for your beliefs? I say appropriately because you don't have to be a scholar in these things, and we're not all called to be scholar, but we are all, excuse me, we are all called to give a right answer for the hope that we have in us. Are you ready to talk about how the gospel changes and influences all of these conversations? If you're not, don't feel bad. That's why we've prepared this series for you. We've prepared some additional resources for you online, bridgewater.church slash mirrors. I'll put it up on our Facebook page later. There'll be some additional resources in there. But, but here's our commitment to you through the series. We want you to be able to confidently answer each of these questions, 
to know in your heart of hearts how you're going to approach them. And the next time God gives you an opportunity to talk to somebody who doesn't believe like less an outsider, as Colossians would say, you are ready to give an answer seasoned with salt, full of grace and unwavering truth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. Humbled by you this morning, humbled by your word and your vastness and your expanse, and yet you chose us. And more than choosing us, even when we rebelled against you, you pursued us, God. Pray this morning, if there's any heart in here who has never found the good news of Jesus and is hearing it perhaps for the first time, that um, you would move in their heart. If that's you here today, we would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to have a life-giving relationship with Jesus. You can find me or you can mark it on the communication card. God, we love you. We thank you that you are a good father. You do hope or you do put things in our life uh, to protect us and defend us. God, I pray that as a people, we would embody the same attitude and approach to life that Jesus did, that we would be full of grace and truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.